Hey listeners, you've heard on the podcast from casting directors and Broadway directors just how vital a well-curated social media presence can be for your career. The Breakdown is proud to be partnering with TSMA Consulting, a globally recognized social media firm that can help you authentically grow your following without using bots, fake followers, or anything like that. I particularly love the welcome packet and the videos they include that help you optimize your account. And wow, did I learn a lot. The TSMA is offering an exclusive discount for our listeners. Use offer code BREAKDOWN20 for $20 off any of their growth packages at tsmagrowth.com. All right, listeners, on to the show. I'm Robbie, and this is The Breakdown. Hey, listeners, welcome back to The Breakdown. It's been a minute. The podcast went on a hiatus this past fall because of another project that I was happily working on, but it was also a good moment to take some space and just rethink the show a bit, the mission, the guests, the conversations we're having, and really make sure the podcast is truthfully reflecting our industry after all the ups and downs of the past two years. Now, what I didn't imagine was all of the new listeners that have found the podcast in the downtime. So if you're a new listener, welcome to the community. I'm so happy you're here. And if you've been here since the beginning, welcome back. And I'm so thrilled that you keep listening week after week. I can promise you, as always, some very thrilling and insightful conversations from some of theater and television's finest. But I couldn't think of a better way to welcome you all back than with this next guest. This week, I'm bringing you my conversation with producer Tom Curtehy. Tom is a Tony and Olivier award-winning producer whose projects have spanned Broadway, Off-Broadway, The West End, national and international tours. Broadway credits include The Inheritance, Hadestown, Terrence McNally's Frankie and Johnny in The Claire de Lune, starring Audra McDonald and Michael Shannon, Anastasia, It's Only a Play, starring Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick, The Visit, starring Cheetah Rivera. West End credits include The Inheritance, The Jungle, Edward Albee's The Goat or Who is Sylvia. Off-Broadway credits include the most recent revival of Little Shop of Horrors, The White Chip, The Jungle, White Rabbit, Red Rabbit, which were all New York Times critics' picks. Additional Tony nominations include Mothers and Sons, After Midnight, Ragtime, and Masterclass. Tom serves on the Broadway League Board of Governors, the Board of Trustees of Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS, the Advisory Council for the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas, and is a founding director of the nonprofit Berwyn Lee London New York Playwrights. He is the 2019 recipient of the Robert Whitehead Award for Outstanding Achievement in Commercial Theater Producing, and as an attorney, Tom spent nearly two decades providing free legal services to people living with HIV and AIDS, and served for many years on the Executive Committee of the New York City LGBT Center. So, listeners, you can see why I was totally over the moon to have Tom on the podcast. He is without a doubt one of the most influential producers we have today. Not only is he incredibly successful, but the shows he shepherds and gives life to are some of my favorite shows in recent years. We chat about so much, including something that I really wanted to get clear for myself, what a commercial producer actually does. It really is about inspiring people to achieve their best in a creative space. His process for finding new projects to produce. My head and my heart have to be captivated by whatever the story it is that I want to be telling. And if there isn't that marriage of intellect and emotion, 
I'm probably not going to want to take the ride. And when talking about the audition room, he explains that if you've made it to an audition where the producer is there, they aren't evaluating your talent at that point. It's whether or not you're right for the ecosystem of that production. Ecosystem is Tom's word, and I love it. He gives us an example about the casting process for Anastasia I think everyone should hear. As always, if you like what you hear, please give the podcast a shout out on Instagram and tell your friends. The Breakdown Podcast community is growing, it has grown, and it is because of all of you sharing your favorite episodes on your stories and with your friends. All right, listeners, without further ado, here is my conversation with theater producer Tom Curdy. Well, Tom, I am so happy and honored to be seeing you and chatting with you and we met briefly a long time ago, but I'm a huge fan of your work and the shows that you work on and and that you produce and that you do. And so when thinking about a producer, a commercial Broadway producer that I wanted to chat with and bring the conversation to listeners, you were truly the first person I thought of just because of the work that you do. And I'm such a fan of it. And so I am grateful for you and your time today. So thank you. Thank you, Robbie. I'm, I'm glad to be here. And I always enjoy talking about what we do, because I tend to learn something every time we do these kinds of things. I love that. And and I do too. I told you before we started recording, I think I'm going to be doing a lot of listening and learning myself here today with, with all the listeners. But I guess my first qu- kind of question to just dive in is, how are you? Anything that you're like ruminating about or thinking about or that's come across your desk in the last few days that you're just kind of you know, bopping around or, you know, how are you today? Where are you? Where am I? I'm, um, it's every, every question is so big, uh, right? <laughs> because I have two shows that are returning in September. I have Hades Town and Little Shop of Horrors. I have a lot of shows that are on the horizon in various stages of development. I feel very much a part of a social justice movement that is bringing change to our stages and this country. I lost my husband during the pandemic and I'm hoping um, to memorialize him this fall, which I have not been able to do because of COVID. Um, so how are you is, is just an is a huge, question um but i but i'm good i'm i'm filled with hope and a focus and purpose so for those things i'm grateful absolutely and i'm so sorry about the loss of of your husband of terrence we i um never crossed paths with him but i was a huge fan of his work and what he was writing and was reading all of his plays when i was in college and then when i was auditioning for them and i feel like though i didn't know him personally i do and I think a lot of people in the theater community, if they didn't know him personally, felt like they did know a part of him through seeing so much of his work. And he was, the work seemed so personal, at least to me. And I felt like we were all able to get to know him a little, which was quite beautiful. So I'm so sorry about that. But I'm looking forward to the to the memorial that you talked about. That, that makes me happy to think that that will happen. So... I guess my, you know, the burning question that I just have for you is, and I, I said this before we started recording, but 
I just am a huge fan of the work that you, of the, that you produce, even what you were just saying, Hades Town. I was just interviewed on a podcast and they said, what's the show that you're most excited to see? And I said, Hades Town when it returns. And I, I saw it in London and loved it and hadn't gotten a chance to see it in New York yet. I think Eva's voice is a once in a generation voice. It's one of those shows that I feel like it was the perfect marriage of composer, playwright, director, uh, creative team, cast, you know. The other show, and I'm not even just saying this, that I feel that way about truly is The Inheritance. I felt like with the different director or with a different cast or with a different set design, it would have been a different show. And I'm not sure that it would have been the, the piece of theater that I love so much. You, what I'm getting at is you have an incredible aesthetic, I think. And, and um, without even knowing you that well, I just am... I know that you see things in a certain way and and same with Little Shop, which was a great, a great revival. So I'm just wondering for you, where did that aesthetic come from? How did you develop that? You know, as young actors in school, they're kind of taught develop your aesthetic and find mm. the, the art you like. And I'm just wondering as someone who, and aesthetic is and taste is completely subjective, but as someone who I'm gravitated towards your aesthetic, where did that come from? How do you define and and keep working on that? No, that's it's an interesting question. For me, the essentials are my head and my heart have to be captivated by whatever the story it is that I want to be telling. And if there isn't that marriage of intellect and emotion, I'm probably not going to want to take the ride. I uh, grew up queer in a suburban middle-class environment. So I've always felt a sense of otherness and um, I've always had an interest in what lies beneath the surface of any conversation or any human behavior or any uh, story that's being told. So uh, for me, the art of producing is very much about bringing characters and stories to life but ensuring that that's happening on multiple levels. And I tend to um, like stories that are infused with hope, but that are unafraid of darkness. Uh, it sounds so cliche, but I, I really feel like it's uh, searching for light through the darkness is something um, that's uh, es essential for all of us. And it's so much a part of what the human condition is and how we survive and thrive and celebrate one another. Those are, those are the things that excite me. Absolutely. I feel like those stories of hope are also really what we're going to be needing always, yes. but also on the other side of this. But, but I love that you added the not afraid of the darkness because it's, that's the world we live in, you know. I, I, I don't want to back up, but I, but I almost want to preface for our listeners. You know, if someone asks you and they're, they're a muggle, you know, they're not a theater person and they meet you, you know, at a restaurant or a party and they say, oh, Tom, what do you do? What do you say as your title? Do you know, specifically maybe commercial producer? Do you say producer in general? And then how would you define what it is a producer does? And you can be pretty basic about that because I, I think we all have an, an idea in our head of what it is, but I, I think it would be just interesting to hear what you have to say. And also I realize that every office and producer operates differently and maybe has yeah. different tasks, but so you can keep it maybe specific to, to what your office does and, and what you do. 
Sure. I, I really wish that I had the elevator pitch answer to what it is that I do because it happens all the time. When, when I say I produce theater, people ask, what does that mean? And I have yet to come up with the, the right answer. What I, what I heard someone else once say is try putting on a show without one. And that was helpful for me. I think that uh, I, I consider myself a creative producer. So I care very much about story and words and music. And I get very involved in the development of scripts. I do my best to provide a safe space so that artists can do their best work. And I think that's the, my most important job is getting the best and the brightest in a room and saying, go play, go create. Uh, and you know, maybe I'm the guy who has guardrails so that if people are veering off point, I can help them get back on track. But it really is a, um, in some ways, being an artist whisperer, right? It's about bringing out the best in people. So they tell the story they're trying to tell or design the costume or create the lighting cue. It, it, it really is a, about inspiring people to achieve their best in a creative space. Of course, it's raising money, it's reviewing contracts, it's ensuring that a, a show is set up for success. So it, it can be as mundane sounding, it's not mundane, it's important as saying like, we need to make sure that our weekly running costs are low enough so that we have a long run. We don't wanna set ourselves up for failure. We need to make sure that our ad campaign and our marketing campaigns are reaching the right audiences and we're getting the proper returns on our investment so that we're not hemorrhaging money so that we can put money back into the show or pay everybody involved and, and ensure a, a good, long, thriving life for the piece that I want to produce. So it's, it's kind of, it's multifactorial. And in some ways it's like being a CEO, I suppose. Yeah. Make at all just yes yes and i think that that was a great elevator pitch but it was specific but also all-encompassing i wonder about one you know specific part of what you just said and maybe you can use an example of a specific show but i just wonder how you and i know it's probably the answer is oh it's different for every piece but how do you usually get involved with a piece or where does it usually start in my head, it's like, oh, you get invited to a reading of something, your head and your heart, like you spoke about, respond to it, and you start having conversations. But maybe it's not that. Maybe it's a lot of different places. But how do you get introduced to these stories and these people? Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll give you two. When Terrence and I first met back at the um, 20 years ago, um, he was doing a show called The Visit, a Candor and Ed musical starring Cheetah Rivera uh, in, in Chicago. At the time, I was working as an attorney providing free legal services to people with HIV and AIDS. I was not a theater producer. I had, we had met because I produced a panel conversation about the theater and I had studied dramatic literature, but I was a lawyer, I was basically a civil rights lawyer at the time. Early in our relationship, I went and saw it, and I thought it was just 
dazzling. I thought it was dark and mysterious and romantic and, and melodic and just absolutely mesmerizing. It was in 2000, it was in October of 2001. Uh, no, forgive me. It was, yes, it was October of 2001, which was right after 911. And it was in a musical that involved a murder and, and it was genuinely, the material was dark and edgy. And it wasn't the right time to bring that to Broadway um, because the, the mood of the world was um, people wanted to laugh and people wanted to get away from the pain of 911. But it stayed with me. I, I, and I didn't have the skill set to be a producer, but I just, I thought it was a masterpiece as I still believe. Um, I was on a cut to a few years later, I'm on a plane I happen to have the script, I'm now producing theater. I happen to have the script for the visit in my backpack and John Doyle gets on the plane and I had always thought he would be the perfect director for it. So I literally stopped him on a plane and gave him the script and said, I think you're the right guy for this musical. Can we have a conversation? And over the course of several months, we went on these artistic dates with one another and he ultimately directed it on Broadway in a production that was heralded and it was Tony nominated and it was just absolutely beautiful. So that's the kind of crazy thing that you have to be prepared to do if you want to be a producer. I believe you have to be a bit fearless and understand that you're going to hear the word no a lot. But every now and then you're in the right place at the right moment and synchronicity happens. And, and the visit is really an example of that. I just was, I just stopped him and said like, you need to do this. And, and he did a brilliant job on it. With the inheritance, uh, as I think I mentioned earlier in this conversation, Robbie, I worked providing free legal services to people with HIV and AIDS for nearly 20 years, um, mostly in the in the Bronx and at gay men's health crisis um, in the late 80s through uh, about 2000 or the early 2000s. Um, and I've always been a, a LGBTQ plus rights activist. The agent Olivier Sultan at CAA, um, I contacted me knowing that I was on vacation and said, I have this play that I think you'll love. Can you read it? But you have to read it quickly. And I, I said, you know, I'm, I'm on vacation. Can it wait? And he said, it really can't wait. And I said, okay, you know, I, I, I trust your taste. You know me well. Why don't you send it to me? And he said, well, there's one thing I should warn you. It's several hundred pages long. <laughs> <laughs> I thought okay, I'm kind of in this Zen place. I'm on vacation. I'm in the, I'm, you know, my mind is clear. It'll be interesting reading material. And if I don't like it, you know, I'll just put it down. And you've seen the inheritance in the first act of part one, there is a scene where a, a character named Walter um, arrives from the Midwest in New York in 1981. And the first thing he does when he arrives in New York is go to the, he goes to the Stonewall Inn um, because he's read that this is the birthplace of our liberation. And when he arrives, it's a Chinese restaurant and there's no indication 
that it was it was once the Stonewall Inn or it was the birthplace of our queer rights movement. There's there's nothing to suggest that history was made in this space. In 1981, I arrived in New York, um, and on my second day in the city, I went to the Stonewall because I was praying that I could find the strength to come out and experience my own liberation. And it was a bagel place. There was no indication that it was had once been the Stonewall or that, um, or and there was nothing to suggest its historic significance. And I went in and I had a bagel and a cup of coffee and I said a prayer and I just thought, I need to find the strength to come out and be the person that I was put on this planet to be. I need to find love and to be a part of a community. And when I, so when I read that first act, it was as though Matthew Lopez had read my journals. I, I, I truly couldn't believe it. Um, this young Puerto Rican American queer kid who was 20 years my junior was telling my story. And um, so from that moment on, there were hundreds of pages more to read. I knew that I would be producing this play. And that set me off on a journey uh, to the Young Vic and beyond. And, you know, getting to work with uh, people like Stephen Daldry and Matthew Lopez um, and just the partners along the way. It was really one of the great, great gifts of my life. Well, that piece of theater was one of the great gifts for me to be able to see. I mean, I know what you mean exactly. That monologue that Walter does that's, you know, I don't, it, I haven't seen the script. It's probably a few pages and you feel like it's just a moment and it's just, it's really special. And so, yeah, it was, it was just a, an exciting piece of theater. And I yeah. love that story about the visit. I loved that musical. I saw it with the late Roger Reese and it was just so exceptional. And just to know that the journey was so long from, from that first moment to Broadway, but um I guess sometimes, like you said, it needs to be, and it's in the right time. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a big part of what producing is. It's knowing, is this the right moment to be telling this story? Is this the right venue? Are these the right actors? Is this the right <clears throat> creative team? I ask myself those questions every day, all day, every day. Yeah, I think I imagine a big part of being a producer, what you do is the relationships and who you know and the people you know and and knowing who does what well and what's everyone's strengths. We talk a lot on the podcast and we hear from different people about relationships and networking in, in the business. And I just wonder, what is it like for you to meet people and to create relationships and to meet these people that you maybe would be working with in the future? I mean, do you do you see a show and then you flip like, who is that lighting designer? Or you, you, know, you see an actor and you're like, who, who is that actor? Or I just wonder if you can talk a little bit about, and then what do you do? Do you usually, will you reach out to that person? Or I just wonder for someone like you in your position, what, we hate the word networking, but it's what it is. You know what no, that? No, 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 no. It's a, it's a great question. And, and the answer is yes, yes, yes. I do all of that. Uh, so <clears throat> one of the great, great, great gifts of being married to Terrence uh, was that he, no, I truly nobody loved the theater more than Terrence McNally. And uh, we would go to the theater probably five nights a week, which includes 
off, off Broadway, off Broadway would go out to Brooklyn or Queens or New Jersey. We just, he just loved following the next generations of theater makers as well as Broadway. You know, I mean, he just, we love the theater and over the years got into the practice of in my playbills or in, in the little pieces of paper that I would get in some of these sort of small productions, I'd circle the name of a designer that I thought had done something particularly innovative or the name of an actress that who really captivated me. Um, when I sit in on auditions, very often an actress or an actor is uh, not right for a particular part, but they are bringing something extraordinary into the room. And I really do remember folks. So, you know, someone who might not be right for a particular part, most often we're not evaluating talent. If you're in the room, you are gifted you you know it's really is this person the right person for this role in this production and it's so specific and it's it's always been i i struggle with the audition process i i, I love it because you just think oh my god there's so much talent in this world but it's also, you know, hearts get broken and it's really often not tied to whether or not someone is good. It's are they right for the role in the ecosystem of this particular production? So I, I do, re I remember all of it. I, I, I love writers. So when I see something, um, when I see a play by a fresh voice, I keep it in mind and I try to promote them through the uh, I'm involved with a foundation that supports playwrights. I, we've created a Terrence McNally Award. There are different ways that I try to really encourage writers and, and make sure they stay writers because we need new voices. And, and when you have to pay the rent, you have to do other jobs. The challenge of creating space so that you can carve away at your craft is, is I don't need to tell you, this is not a new thought, but it's really one of the, the great challenges for anyone trying to create a career for themselves. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes a grant or even a little job is a big difference between being able to spend your time and energy creating, writing, working on your craft, as opposed to giving so much focus to a day job or to waiting tables. And, and it's not just those six hours that you're waiting the tables. It's kind of more encompassing than that. So, you know, as so many people can probably relate. The other thing that I often say to people is I, when I was a, an attorney, I used to sit in on other trials just to watch other people hone their craft and learn mm -hmm. from, and, and I do tell people, you know, if you're the first person to arrive and the last person to leave, everybody notices and the work is really hard. And even if you're on a production and stuck with a mundane task, but you do it with commitment and you're paying attention to what's happening around you, very often that's going to lead to for different forms of advancement. And in New York theater on Broadway, it's as though we're on Mount Olympus and there are some extraordinarily smart people working in our industry 
And they're more than book smart. They're people who observe human behavior. And so I, I always encourage younger theater practitioners to be present uh, um, because that's, that's what I remember. I, I genuinely remember when people walk into a room and are just fully present or are in the back of the room taking in every word or every experience and, and properly being a part of a team that's working towards a desired end, artistic end. Yeah, I never actually thought about the way you put it where, you know, we are all interested, you know, in, in the Mount Olympus analogy of, of human behavior. We're watching it on stage. So you can also pick it up off stage, you know, with the people who are doing the smaller tasks or or just around. You can tell whose behavior is committed and fiercely wants to be a part of this world and and maybe those that, that don't or, you know. So. You, can, you can tell. Mm-hmm. You can often tell the lifers very early. There's a hunger, a commitment, there's um, a joy, you know, there's, um, but it's really, it's so much about being present, thinking critically, but constructively, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, we spoke, you know, we just touched on it a little bit, but I do want to maybe use this as an opportunity to talk about the audition room a little bit. It's, it's an interesting theme of the podcast that I love exploring and kind of demystifying what that is. And, and I just want to know for you as a commercial theater producer, when do you get involved in the audition process? What are, what is your job in the audition room? What are you there to do? And, and I'm interested in as not through rose colored glasses as you can, as you can get, you know, like, do you, do you veto casting choices? And I also want to know, like, honestly, do you sometimes have to say that person's not going to sell tickets or, or how much does that come into play, you know, as the producer, as the person that's having to deal, you know, a little bit more with the money. So I imagine that we can start off by saying like you come to like a final callback situation. That's usually when you're there or maybe it's earlier, but I'd love you to kind of pick up with that. I, I, I have a love-hate relationship with the process um, because I truly love bearing witness to all the talent that's out there. So depending on the project, I'll be there for all, even the early auditions, but it really depends on the project. Mostly I'm there for callbacks and or final callbacks. Um, I'm always there for final callbacks, Mm -hmm. not through rose-colored glasses, right. So um, I will say that generally, more often than not, and really more often than not, there is ultimately consensus between the director, the creative, the, the playwright or the book writer, composer, lyricist, and the producer, those are the uh, those are the folks who are really making those final decisions. I usually give the most weight to the dir- to the director whose vision she is trying to realize, where um, they are trying to realize. I was married to a writer, and there is a particular music to people's language. Uh, and I'm not talking about notes on a page. I'm really talking about the, the cadences and the way that people um, speak and deliver dialogue. Uh, and, and 
So it's always important to make sure that she, he, they are being served properly. And then of course, um, you know, the, the, the composer in a musical has a lot appropriately to say. Again, more often than not, there is usually consensus, but there are times where there, folks just have a different notion of, of where it needs to go or who needs to be cast. I have never, ever, ever vetoed someone or said, you know, screw you, gang, this, it has to be this way. I do my best to use my skills as a former litigator to say, <laughs> I, I think that since our director is going to be in the room working with these people, we need to get behind her or him uh, and, and um, trust the vision here. If I think that person is sort of on a suicide mission, I'll pull them aside and say, like, are you sure? Um, but it's, it's, um, it's about finding consensus without compromise. And it can be very, very, very tense. Um, I have absolutely said at times, I love that actor, but he doesn't sell tickets or she is fantastic, um, but, and, and would sell tickets, but she can't act her way out of a paper bag. So, you know, I mean, it, it's, um, the marriage of art and commerce is, is, is tricky. And that's what you want to, you want to find those two elements and, 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 put a ring on <laughs> um, uh, but it's it's the, the conversations can be really uncomfortable you know I will say I've only once been in a room where I thought it was nasty where like people would leave the room and, and there would be sarcasm about the the performers and and I got out of that project because I just I don't have the guts to do it. I don't have the guts to walk into a room in front of a bunch of people behind a desk and pour my guts out. I, I, I truly don't. Um, and so if there isn't a, a, a deep undercurrent of um, respect, uh, I know I'm in the room with the wrong people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, often that to me just would seem like a red flag for maybe other other problems. I don't want to be with shitty, disrespectful people. Like uh, the work is too hard, and 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 people bring too much to to not be respectful. Having said that, if you walk in completely unprepared, then you're being disrespectful of us of, of our time, and I and that you can tell also. I mean, one of the things that we're all looking at is: does this person even like the material? Do they have they thought about it? Are they, they don't, everyone doesn't necessarily have to be off book, but you have to be familiar with the material and you have to want the gig because that's something we're all looking for when, when someone walks into the room. You know, I'm interested if you have any, like just a, maybe a story off the top of your head of someone coming in for an audition or an audition story or of just an example that you know, this is the kind of thing that was interesting, or this person did something that other people don't do, or 
the way that they approach the room in with the with their energy or you know the dialogue that who they were and they told a story before they even got into their audition sides or or something that was just uh, that stands out in your mind as like this was a great audition but maybe something that um was different than what you normally see this is going to be more general than specific with regards to the experience. But I remember when we were casting Anastasia, we had done an, a national search and there were some really, really great candidates, but we weren't finding exactly who we felt we needed. Um, and Christy Altamar, who ultimately got the part and was sensational. Yes. Um, we had seen her earlier in the process and she didn't get the role but we brought her back and i remember uh she wore an outfit that suggested the character of anya in her in her difficult times um and it was very subtle um but it was really smart and she absolutely captivated us mm. and then um we had brought derek Klena back if memory serves he too we, we didn't think he was quite right and on the same day he was there and we had the two of them come in and sing together a song called the crowd of thousands and honestly in that moment the search was over it was like it was so extraordinary. Their chemistry with each other was so sensational. Um, but we had seen both of them and we had been through this exhaustive search and there were so many really wonderful candidates, but we, we didn't think we had quite found our Anya. And, and she walked in the room and we, Frankly, we all sort of put a mirror up our, on ourselves and said, what were we thinking? How did we miss this magic the first time? That's exactly what I was asking for. That was a great, that was a great story. And I don't know, just a great, this is a little, you know, detail of like how, how you interpret the character or your thoughts about what you're reading in the text. There are many ways to contextualize that and bring that into the room. I'm speaking yes. for myself as an actor. And sometimes I don't think I think enough about, not that I'm coming in with a costume in the audition room, but just thinking about what this character's psyche is. Or like you said earlier, I love the word you said, ecosystem of of what I think this world might be. And that can be incredibly helpful, I think. Just even getting into character. I mean, absolutely. We wanted a strong young woman, not a victim, not, not, uh, not someone who is dependent on a prince to set her free. It was, we, we wanted to tell a feminist story and we wanted a, 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 a young woman who was um, exuded strength and absolute conviction. Um, and that, of course, she brought all of that and then opened and when she sang, it was like the heavens open, you know, it was just so gorgeous. She's exceptional. I've been a fan of her since she was doing Spring Awakening. So I think we all were like very yeah. happy to see her get her, you know, what we all knew was coming down the road for her and excited to see everything she's going to do after, you know, after this. Um, I want to pivot a little bit because I, I think it would be a little disingenuous to be, to have this conversation and to be talking about the theater and what it looks like today and the hope we have moving forward without talking about the past year and a half and to know that 
specifically what I'm talking about is the racism within our industry and the social injustice and inequity, I think, in so many levels, in so many different ways, and also um, inequitable and unfair treatment of even not performers that has come to light, you know, recently. And I just think we've all kind of been, we've had to stop for the past year and just examine and think and read and learn. And I just wonder, I'm sure there's so much, you know, we could do a whole podcast interview just on this subject, I think. But for you, what is something that you feel like where you are and the influence that you have? What is something that you learned and that you can implement or do moving forward that maybe would not have happened without this, um, all this coming to light or the, or the pause that we've all been forced to take? I'm sure a lot comes up, but maybe one thing that you feel will be changed or, or different moving forward? Well, I hope, I hope a lot is different as we go forward. And I think um, examining, examining the distinction between, quote, not being racist and being actively anti-racist is a very important distinction. We all have to do more than just look within it's really about in my old uh hiv activist days we used to say anger into action and i believe that we can harness these last 16 months and um ensure that george floyd's murder uh, didn't happen in vain and i think that we have a responsibility to think about that globally uh, in the world of politics, but also it is said that all politics is local and within our industry, we should hold ourselves to measurable standards. Um, and I've been involved with Black Theatre Coalition and Black Theatre United and ensuring that every production at every level of management and representation includes BIPOC folks in, in ways that are meaningful and not as a band-aid or, or tr not to traffic and tokenism, but to really say, okay, we are about to embark on a new production. Is there a BIPOC producer with a, who is a, an authentic stakeholder or are there BIPOC producers? What is the design team? What is the composition of the design team? What does the company look like? Uh, representation matters and, and the stories that we tell matter. And we have an opportunity to not let ourselves off the hook or not to say, you know, we're, so, we're the theater, we're so evolved. That's not good enough. And I think it's incumbent upon all decision makers to say that, yes, we want to be a part of change and we want to lift people up in ways that are not simply cosmetic, but are structural. So well said, so well said. And I, I couldn't agree more. And I loved, I loved how you just said that, that are, that are not cosmetic, but structural. I think that that's, I think that that's huge and, and definitely something for me that I've also been thinking about. I love that. And yes, I agree. I, I have so much hope going forward that it's not all going to happen overnight, unfortunately, but nothing happens overnight, but it seems like the steps forward are 
seem like there, a lot of people are doing some really wonderful things. And just even looking at the theater that's coming back, that's being produced is really exciting and gets me even more excited to get back in a theater. It is exciting. It really is exciting. I think we, we have to do our best to set people up for success. I think that's, that needs to be a focus of, of the conversation as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the question that I usually like to end with, we're, we're getting so close to time, but I mean, I could keep talking forever, but is, um, you know, looking back when you, it's kind of different because I think you, like you had said, you entered the theater industry a little bit later than maybe most people that are also, um, that are doing it now. But when you, when you first started, you know, when you were seeing that production of The Visit and maybe you were still in Chicago, like you said, when you were really just getting your feet wet, what is something about the business that you, the business specifically, that you wish you kind of knew then? Or something that, you know, I think we all have to learn things in our own way, of course, but what is something that you wish you could have known that you looking back hindsight is is always 2020 Uh no that's a really fabulous question um i think the hardest i'm going to go to a a a difficult truth i learned that has actually morphed into something more positive but one of the very first productions i was involved with was a a play of terence's called some men um, which we did at the philadelphia theater company and um, I wasn't even a producer of that, but I was very, I was very involved with that production. And it was really a difficult, it was a difficult birth. Uh, you know, everybody worked really hard. It ultimately had a happy ending with a wonderful production at Second Stage Theater, and it got nominated for all sorts of play, best play awards. But, but in birthing it, it was. Oh, it was really, it was a tough process. But it was a kind of difficulty that brought us all together, brought the, everyone involved with the production close to one another. And I, I, I really had a sense of family as when we were doing Some Men in Philadelphia. And then after, the, I felt so close to everyone involved. And then after the final performance, people sort of packed up their apartments and left and everybody, everybody dispersed. And I wasn't ready. I was emotionally, I truly wasn't ready for that kind of abrupt separation because I had brought these people so close into my heart and felt so connected to them. And I'm still friendly with everybody. The happy ending is that I'm still friendly with everybody who was involved. But in my prior professional life, I had never felt such a sense of closeness and, and really the creation of a, of a, a chosen, a found family. And then suddenly you're folding up the tent and you're gone and everybody's in taking different jobs and in different places. And I wasn't ready for that, um, the jolt emotionally that that provided. It was, I really struggled with. And now I understand that this is how it works and, and it's not, you're not, these people aren't falling out of your lives, but the intensity of the connection is different. And in the best of circumstances, they become friends for life. 
Yeah, I think that that feeling gets addicting. You know, I think that's why we keep doing it is that that connection. I mean, yes, working is great, but you get this unbelievable connection, especially when you're out of town, you know, when people yeah. are going back to their families and, you know, that they are just in a random cities or, or, you know, just kind of all together. And even when you're not working at night after, you're all still working because, you know, you just love it so much and that wouldn't be yeah. happening in New York. Yeah. You know, I, I just have one more question for you. Do you have like a few more minutes? Yeah, sure. You, Because you brought it up a few times and I'm just so curious, you know, you it's so wonderful that you got to work with Terrence so much. And my partner is a, an artistic director and a director and we also get to work. It's an interesting, fun thing to get to work with your partner and and also projects that that have no bearing on your partner, you're still working with because you're like, what do you think about this? Or like, what do you think about this line? And it's really a sweet thing to get to bounce bounce things off of each other. I just wonder if you can talk a little bit and as much as you're willing to say about what what your working relationship was like with Terrence, you know, what working with him was like. Was it always roses? Was it hard? No. Did, did you, did you yeah. share things when it wasn't the the project that you're working on together. Um, I just wonder, did you search out ways to work together or or just anything you want to say about that? Because it just seems like a really wonderful partnership, but also creative partnership to me. Sure, it's, it's rich terrain. Um, and we can talk even more about it someday. Um, working with Terrence was, a, was a, a, a gift. It was It was great, but it was not always rosy. I mean, we had different roles in any given production. And um, we actually had a rule in the house, no talking about work after 11 o'clock at night because you want to, you wanted to be able to sleep and not be ruminating on, you know, and, and um, we had to set up a lot of boundaries for ourselves um, because it wouldn't, we both felt and and deeply believed it wouldn't be fair to the other people in the room if we were talking about the work privately. Um, so for instance, on a new musical, I always needed to make sure that the lyricist and the composer fully understood that Terrence didn't have a home field advantage, that he didn't only have my ear. And the trust of, as a producer, having the trust of my artists has always been um, a, a primary concern. And so very often people would assume that we'd go home and talk about the, the difficult moments or uh, scenes or, or challenges that we were having on the production. And, and by and large, we never violated that because it wouldn't have been fair to the composer or the lyricist or the director. And, and frankly, all of the, people we worked with soon came to understand that that was true. That wasn't just posturing. Um, and I think if you asked anyone that we worked with, they would tell you that we, we were super respectful of those boundaries. If it was a play, a play by Terrence, that was different because we weren't, um, I didn't have those same concerns for the other authors. Uh, um, and the, the thing that, was great about working with Terrence <clears throat> I'm sorry Tom I'm so sorry sorry 
No, oh, I'm sorry. I'm. It was a sensitive question that maybe. No, I, I love. Have. I love. I love talking about him. There was there was so much trust, so I could say, "Honey, that that scene is too long, or you're not. We're not. It's not working." And he knew that it came from a place of love, and not ego. Um. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing to get to have that other level of a relationship to be able to have that, you know, the, the, the day to day, but also that creative partnership. It's almost like you're given more yeah. than any other relationship than, than people are walking around on the streets of New York. You get to have something beautiful because it's not just work. It's religion. It is spiritual. It's, it's so spiritual. It's, it's everything, you know, and, and, I mean, really, one of the genuine blessings of having shared my life with Terence is I still have his words, and I will be able to bring life to his characters, his plays, and his musicals for as long as I'm around. And that's um, lucky, lucky me, you know. And his words will be spoken far after both of us are around. So, which which I know to be true, Tom. I cannot thank you enough for speaking to me today about i feel like we covered so much and so so many wonderful things that i just feel like as a young actor i would have or a young producer or a young director would have just loved to hear to kind of create more openness in, in our business and i'm so grateful to have someone who is as accomplished as you are and does in my opinion some of the the wonderful the wonderful work that we're seeing in mount olympus um to, to speak with me today so thank you for your time thanks this was a real pleasure thank you For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit thebreakdownpodcast.com and connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Instagram and Facebook at The Breakdown with Robbie. We also have some pretty exciting supplementary content over there like Instagram live catch-ups with some of your favorite podcast guests. If you like what you hear, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and write a quick review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. And don't forget to check out TSMA Consulting. Use offer code BREAKDOWN20 for $20 off any of their growth packages at tsmagrowth.com. All right, listeners, thanks for listening, and get ready for another episode of The Breakdown. Ah!